Thanks, you guys. Uh, great to see you. My name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here, if you're new. And before I even get going, I just w- I want to say something about our missionaries, David and Heather Wilson, and they're going to be out in the hallway after this service. You know, I just think it's so cool that we have people that are from Sunridge that are so interested that people hear the message that we just sung about that 15 years ago they, they traveled to a foreign country, to Turkey, and they spent hours and hours and days and years trying to figure out a language so that people could hear what we just sang about. That's remarkable. And it's a worthy calling. Yeah, I will say, yeah, you should applaud for that. <clears throat> and I started thinking, you know, there might be 12 people in our church that you just like, you don't even know what to do with all your money right now. It's just stacking up. You're, you know, I mean, besides sticking it in a coffee can and burying it in your backyard. And you've been thinking, I got an extra 100 bucks a month. If there were 12 people in our church that did that, that would, that would raise the money for these people, for David and Heather to, to take the next step. So whether that's you, whether you're thinking, I got oodles of money, I don't know what to do with it all, or you just want to know more, it's like stop by and see them because they're just doing amazing work. And they're, they're sunridge. And um, I just pray that God gets them going. It's like this one little thing that's so easy that they can just get moving on with that. And they don't have to worry about you know, paying their bills and living with their in-laws, or, you know. <laughs> Although I'm sure they love it, guys, no problem. So um, if you're a Christian today, or if you're interested in Christian thought, I want you to really pay attention today. You know, this, is, this message today is going to start on the theological side. It's going to be very cerebral. But I, but I want you to know there's a reason for that. We're going to end up in a place that's very practical, but we, we have to address the theology part first. <clears throat> because what this passage that we're going to look at in Philippians chapter 2, um, it addresses is something that's really significant in terms of Christian thought, because there are uh, lots of organizations that have the name Jesus on them. They might have them on their church. They might uh, have them in their traditions or their, uh, their, their messages. But, but there is a distinction, and part of the distinction about the belief of Jesus and what it means to be a Christian comes from this passage. Super important and, um, you know, uh, impactful passage that we'll look at today. It's, we're going to start in Philippians 2 and verse 5, but remember that this is a letter written, from, written by the Apostle Paul back to the church at Philippi, a church he founded. And um, the remarkable thing about this letter is Paul is writing about how to enjoy life from prison. And these thoughts that he shares are going to contribute to what, what, where joy comes from and what it's like to live your life in a way that you're meant to enjoy it. In Philippians 2, verse 5, he's carrying on the thought that we looked at last week about unity. And he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, as an example of what we had talked about last week. And we're going to come back to that. But it's these next three verses, verse 6, 7, and 8, that are 
uh, the most scrutinized and studied verses in this entire letter, and probably, probably these verses are in the top ten of debated passages in Christian circles. Let's read them. In verse 6, about your, mind, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, people that are much smarter than I have concluded that these words are probably uh, part of an early hymn, a a hymn that early Christians sang. And in some people's minds, that kind of like reduces the validity or the credibility of this passage. Like, you know, well, the Apostle Paul, just grabbed these words from a hymn and then he inserted them into his letter. But to me, it's the exact opposite. The, the fact that even if the early church was singing these words, what, what more than anything comes out of this is that we see what early Christians actually believed about Jesus. And so this passage we're going to look at is a really rich and critical passage that, that talks about the humanity and the deity of Christ and how they come together. And it's, it's probably the, what, the most informative of the one-stop passages on the, the subject of Christology or a word that you're going to become familiar with today is Jesus' incarnation, the incarnation of Christ. Now, in your notes, you see like there's a, there's a starting point. First of all, we're going to talk about the theology, a theology of the incarnation. Theology of the Incarnation. So this is the cerebral part. And I just want you to, like, whether you're, you're a theologian or interested in these, I really want you to pay attention because it's, it's really going to be very important to how we apply it. Underneath that in your notes, I have a definition of incarnation. It says that it's a theological term used to, dis- to indicate that Jesus, the Son of God, took on human form. Literally, the act of being made flesh, originating from the Latin version of John 1.14, where it says the Word became flesh. Uh, and you can kind of picture these words, carne, incarnate. You sometimes get a burrito, uh, con carne, right? <laughs> that is with flesh. Some of you get it with um, tofu, was like cone rubber bands or something like that. At least that's what it tastes like, but. So there's five things that come out of this passage about the incarnation of Christ and what it means. Number one, Jesus is God. Uh, In verse 6, Paul writes that he is in the very nature God, and then he talks about equality with God. And this word, when Paul says nature, he has a couple of choices to use in his repertoire of language, and he chooses one that describes the essential nature and the unchanging character of what he's describing. So in other words, the, the form that we know or like the, the people of that time knew of Jesus is like a human form, but his essence, his nature was that of God. There are, there are many verses in your New Testament that talk about the deity of Christ. I'm going to put one up here. Hebrews 1, verse 2. The writer of Hebrews says, In these last days he has spoken to us, that is God, 
in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature. Now, the fact, the, the idea that Jesus is God is really important to Christian thought because there are many religions, many uh, that would come under a Christian that deny the deity of Christ. That is, they would say that Jesus was a good man, Jesus was a great teacher, Jesus was a prophet, Jesus was all these things, but he was not God. And I believe that this passage clearly indicates, and others, that Jesus is God. Number two, as God, Jesus always existed. As God, Jesus always existed. Again, in verse 6, before he talks about the na- being in the nature of God, he says, being in the very nature of God. And this, again, a word that Paul chooses about being, he has many choices. And in here, he uses the essence of a person's nature, this, that it's a continual state or condition. This was not a change in him. That he was from the beginning God. Again, a lot of passages in your New Testament that talk about God existing from the beginning or the Son of God existing from beginning. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. And almost all scholars agree that this is talking about the living Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made, and without Him, nothing was made that has been made. So... Jesus, the Son of God, the living Word, was in existence from the beginning and part of the creative process. Again, Paul writes in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created, that is, by Jesus, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. So there's two pieces of logic that can be interchangeable here. First of all, If Jesus always existed, then he must be God because he's not created later. And in order for Jesus to be God, he had to have always existed. Number three, Jesus released his divine position without relinquishing his deity. He released his divine position without relinquishing his deity. Again in verse 6, While being in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. This word grasp is to hold advantage. Paul is saying that Jesus' equality with, with God did not lead him to a perspective of privilege, but instead of unselfish giving. And that's what he says in verse 7. He made himself nothing. And that literally is emptying. He emptied himself... When Jesus became a human being, he, re, he renounced many things, but not his deity. He renounced his rightful place in heaven, his glorified position at the right hand of the Father. He, he renounced um, his face-to-face relationship with God. He subjected himself to the, to the limitations of a human body. He, he walked away from the eternal riches, and we know that life on earth as a human being, during that time, Jesus is poor. And for a season, Jesus goes not just from the glory of heaven, but for a season, he experiences the wrath of sin. These are the things that Jesus renounced without giving up his divine position. And he did it by taking 
Paul says in verse 7, the very nature of a servant, which is literally bond slave. That, uh, we've described this before, but there are many words for servant. But in some cases, a slave would be freed at this time. And the slave would choose to stay with his master. And that's, that's not a commentary on whether on slavery at all, but it's saying that, that Paul is using a phrase that is part of that culture and how they would understand it. It's like Jesus is saying, I willingly am placing myself in this place of servanthood. So some people ask, well, what is God like? I mean, we can look at Jesus, but one of the things we see from the life of Jesus is the nature of deity is the nature of servanthood. Number four, Jesus inhabited a human body. In verse 7, Paul says that he was made in human likeness. And in verse 8, he was found in appearance as a man. So when Jesus stepped down from his throne into humanity and inhabited a human body, this was not a subtraction for him. It wasn't, didn't release his deity. This was an addition. He is divine. He is God. But what he's added is his humanness for a purpose, and that's number five, that Jesus willingly gave his life to redeem us. He willingly gave his life to redeem us. He, uh, verse 8 says, he was found as, he became, he took on humanity. He, be, he was in appearance a man so that he could humble himself and become obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, why would he do that? Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus relinquished his place in heaven, took on human form, and sacrificed his life on the cross that people like us would know the love of God and we would confess that Jesus is Lord and we would bow to the love of God of God. The point of this passage is that Jesus was indeed already God, but his decision to become human and to go all the way along the road of obedience to the divine plan of salvation, all the way to the cross, this was a decision not to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really meant to be divine. You see, if, he, if Jesus were just a man when he died on the cross, that would be tragic it might even be honorable, but it would not save humanity. The fact that Jesus died on the cross and allowed himself to be executed as a, as a criminal saves humans because it was the Son of God who willingly put himself in that place. He went from the highest position imaginable to the lowest position in selfless love in an expression of deity. Let that sink in. 
We're going to talk about the so what. Now, it's like, so that's, that's the theology part. That's the, the part I wanted you to understand about what this text says about the incarnation. <clears throat> but what does it have to do with joy? Well, I want to say that it's important to have the theology right about the incarnation. But it's also important to get the point. You see, the Christmas story, Jesus coming as an infant, born of a virgin, that, that's the incarnation in story. But what Paul just gave us was the theology of that incarnation. And both are life-changing. The incarnation of Christ brings joy to us if we understand it and it impacts us in the way that it should or the way that it can in three ways. First of all, it's the proof of God's love for you. The incarnation and Jesus' death on the cross is proof of God's love for you. I mean, there's the thought of that. It's like, you know, some of you are still behind on this, like, I'm trying to wrap your brain around this whole thing. And, and by the way, on the back of your note sheet, I believe I put a few links or even a, a, a commentary that you can purchase. You can just Google this. There's a lot more to study about the incarnation and what, and what that meant. And I encourage you to do that. But like, it's kind of like the intellectual part of it. But what, what I want to weigh on you right now is what that means about God's love for you and me. I mean, how does it affect you to think that the God of the universe would stoop so low and go to the cross so that you might be in the family of God? You know, people wonder, does God love them? I think that we're all, in some way, no matter what your religious traditions are or feelings about religion, we're all... We all wonder, does God really love me? Does God care? Does he know I'm alive? Does he care what's going on in my life? Do I matter? Most of the people that I know that reject God, they do so just over this one question. They, they cannot believe that God loves them, that God loves the world. And I would say, look at the cross. God isn't sitting back with his arms folded looking at the world and saying, you know, I hope as soon as you get your act together and kind of do some religious stuff, I'll get, you, can, you can be in my plan. You can be, that's not how it is. The picture of God here is one of stooping, of coming down to earth in a demonstration of his love. It's all these misconceptions today about, you know, who God is and and whether he cares about people, this is, this is the clearest thing we might have of how God feels about us. If you're exploring faith and, you know, you're, you're probably thinking, you know, I know there's something more. It's like, but I can't, I'm not there yet. I, I'm trying to wrap my brain around it. How does it affect you to, to think that that something more loves you so much that he would give his life for you? By the way, 
Even if you've stepped across the line of faith, this is something to remind yourself of. If, if someone's here and, and you've not received Christ, we want you to find faith. But those of you who have faith already, this truth should help you to refine it, to rediscover it, because you, you can lose your way. And you could start to think all these other things are, are more important, or, like you, or you're in the middle of crisis, all these crises, or you're just doing life. You got kids, you're married, you're trying to go to school. You, you have all these things going on, and, you, and, and things happen, and there's prognosis, and there's just life happens, and you say, Does God love me? Jesus died for us. I, I think this is a good time. I did this in the first service too. I just would like to pause and thank God for, for this truth. And I just ask you, like if you're a person of faith, to bow with me and pray these words along with me, if you will. Thank you, God, for loving me so much that you stepped down from heaven. And I, I confess that you're Lord. You're the Lord that loves beyond imagination, and I bow my knee to that. Amen. You know, if you want to enjoy life, then relish in the fact that God loves you that much. Number two, the incarnation. The joy of it is that it's the source of strength to live the faith in you. It's the source of strength to live the faith in you. In a way, the way the Bible depicts Christ coming into our lives is like a second incarnation. Jesus inhabited a body in order to give his life and to give us like a, a way we could understand who God is by becoming a human being. But when we, when we become a Christian, when we receive the gospel, Christ inhabits us. Paul writes in Colossians about the glorious mystery of Christ in you. We don't understand it completely, but Christ is in us. He writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? The spirit of God dwells in us. In 1 John 4.12, John writes that God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. That was, that was revolutionary to uh, people that came from the Jewish tradition, God, God dwelt in the temple. And the Apostle Paul is flipping that all upside down, saying we are the temple of God. God dwells in us. What, how, does that, how does that affect us in daily life? Well, it's like you have the power of God in you. You have this growing spirit of God in you. You have Christ the kingdom of God growing in you. Like a mustard seed, it keeps growing. Like yeast, it permeates, and it continues to grow inside us and fill us so that we, we have the strength to live out the faith in us. I know that maybe this week, maybe today, you, you, you're facing things, and you're going like, how in the world am I ever going to fill in the blank? How am I going to do that? But, I mean, let's just start with the calling that God has given us that we're to make disciples. We're, we're in a community where our lives bump up against other people and we're to shine the light of Christ. How in the world am I going to be able to do that? I can't do that. And yet you're probably facing other things like 
I, I'm never going to be able to accomplish that or get through this. I think it about like this role I'm in. It's like, how in the world am I ever going to be able to lead a church? And some of you are like, you know, I've wondered the same thing about you, Britt. <laughs> but you know, you don't have to be a pastor to have um, things that are too big for you to handle. You know, yesterday was Cindy and I's 40th anniversary. And, um, and the first service I... Cindy, where are you? Would you stand up, sweetie? She hates to be pulled up. Come on, honey. They, people want it. That's my wife. Some of you have been asking me, like, are you really married? Because I've never seen your wife. What's your name again? Mary, but yeah, anyway... Um, and so, you know, I didn't do that to tell you how awesome we are or anything like that or, like, you know, it's really about her awesomeness. But, you know, yesterday when we woke up and we're drinking our coffee, you know, 40 years is a pretty big milestone. And you know the thing that was foremost in our thoughts? Man, we couldn't have done it without God. That's the truth. That is totally the truth. I know you think that pastors and firemen have perfect lives. But we've had our challenges in life just like you. And we can look back, you know, over the kind of like the years of our lives together, and we can see where God intervened for us. I've heard many preachers say that God won't give you anything that you can't handle. What a joke! Ha, ha, ha. I mean, like, I don't know about you, but, like, I'm constantly be giving, God's bringing things in my life I can't handle. That might say something about my capacity to handle things, but we have Jesus Christ living in us. He dwells in us. And that's important because the Christian life is impossible. If you've been saying or asking or out louder in your head saying, God, I'm not sure if I can do this, whatever your fill-in-the-blank is, whatever you're going through, I want to point you back to like something that Paul wrote earlier in this letter. We've already addressed it, but in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, We are confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, we think about that as like there's this thing I want to do, do and like God will get me through it and, and I, you know, like I need that promotion or, you know, I can pass this test or I can get that job. It's like he's going to do it. But, and that's, that's all true. You know, if that's God's will, he's going to open up those doors and move you forward. But really what it's talking about is like the internal thing that's happening with us, that God began a work in you the day you became a Christian and it's been growing. And you know what? He's going to continue to do that work until the day you die and step into glory and you stand before Jesus with all the saints that have gone on before you. Until then, you're on a transformation program. And the only way you're going to get through it, the only that way that good work is going to be completed is because of what he's doing inside you. If you want to enjoy life, then rely on the strength of having Christ in you. Lastly, the joy of incarnation is found because it's the example of how God loves through you. The incarnation is the example of how God loves through you. I want to go back to the first 
part of what we read here. In chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, that little phrase is a link between what he was talking about and then what we just talked about, the incarnation. And if you remember, and I know everyone remembers all of my sermons and all the points, Paul was talking about how to have unity and how to work out conflict. And, that, and he was teaching on, he was giving, you, uh, giving us a list, a, a, a way to go through conflict, a prescriptive list. And he said, you should be humble. You should serve others. You should have an attitude of servanthood. You should put others before you, not just your own interests. And you should cooperate with one another. That's what he was saying. Like, these are the things to do to maintain unity and to have the life that you want. So let this attitude that you have be the same as Christ Jesus. And here's the example the incarnation of Christ. If you want to know what this looks like, here's the teaching. Here's your points. But if you want an example, look at what Jesus did. You have the teaching, and then you have the model of it. And by the way, this, this, this idea of Jesus incarnate and how to maintain unity, Paul is writing this in the middle of a church fight. You remember that from last week, that there's two prominent women in the church, and they're in a conflict, and it's, it's just spilling over into the church, so Paul is addressing this. And he's giving us an example of how to go through that. And don't don't miss this part, that he's writing, remember, this community of Philippi is settled by Romans, by those that pride themselves on being of Rome and the, and, and the values and the ways of doing things. How did Rome solve conflicts? Death, right? Conquer, overcome, we'll be more powerful, we'll acquire, we'll oppress you, and then we will all have unity because you will do exactly what we tell you to do. Or, let's see, what's our option today for those that aren't doing it? Death. And so think about how dramatic, how, how drastically different this teaching is to them. You know, it might be the same with you. That the high calling of a Christian is to experience the God, the, the love of God, to allow the, the love of God to indwell us and empower us and to love others in the same way. And one more thing, and then I'll be wrapping up here. This isn't just individual. You know, this, this translation to NIV, it doesn't do... It complete justice where it says your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. It kind of sounds like that's individual, but it's not. What this literally says is think this in you. And the in you is like a group among yourselves. Think this way among yourselves. So really what Paul is saying is if you want to be happy, if you want to enjoy life, then you 
as individuals, certainly, but you as the body of Christ. Live as Christ lived in this way. Live with humility and servanthood and step down from your place of privilege and serve others if you want to be happy. In other words, if you want to be happy, emulate Jesus. Christ inhabited a body. We call that the incarnation. And today what Jesus really is doing in inhabiting us as we are Christ incarnate. We are, we are ambassadors for Christ, Peter wrote. How many of you are Lego fans? Love Legos? Okay. All right. Why are they so expensive? They're just plastic. They're really pricey. So of the Lego fans, how many of you are freestylers with your Legos? And then, and then how many of you like, you like to get the little box with all the parts and with the instructions on how to make that thing? How many of you are freestylers? How many of you like to get the box and like build the thing? Okay. That really has nothing to do with my message. I just want to know. <laughs> Actually, it does. Because when we, when we think about living Christianly, it's not freestyling. It's not like, well, you know, I determine what my Christian life will look like. I'm like, I'm the possessor of my soul. And, you know, like, no, we have a model. We have a pattern. And, yeah, you get, you get to put some different colors in there and, like, put your own spin on it. But we have a model. It's Jesus. Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's what we're building so whatever matters to you, whatever expression of Christianity you're thinking, like the things that are really on your important list, the thing that should be utmost of importance is to emulate Jesus, to imitate the incarnation with our lives because he loves you, because he's empowered you, and because he's called you to live a life of love just like he did. If you, want, if, you, if you want to know how to grow as a Christian, if you're trying to figure out what it means to live Christianly, look at Jesus. Let's pray.